Hello, this is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today we have an unprecedented three different guests. And so I was going to propose that we do introductions with queer discussion group rules, where each person says name, pronouns, research background, and answers our icebreaker question, if you could date an alien which one would it be? And you can interpret that any way you like. So I'm Charles, he, him, background in entomology and systematic. If I could date an alien, do you know what? This is actually a difficult question. I think probably- This is your question. (laughs) I know. Um, I think I would probably go Odo because I think he would get me and being a shapeshifter would be fun. And he had that really weird scene with Kira where he, like, became a transcendent mist. And that's interesting. Okay, Tessa. My name is Tessa Fisher. She, her, hers. My background is primarily in astrobiology and specifically developing biosignatures for exoplanets, which is going to be very relevant to today's discussion on philosophy on Venus. And it's a little bit cliche, but I would probably go with Liara Tassoni from Mass Effect, just because she is such a pure, sweet flower who can also skin you alive with her mind. So, you know, that's interesting. Hi, I'm Whitney Powers. I use she, her pronouns. My research is on modeling the atmospheres of gas giant planets. So stuff that's Jupiter sized, that could be exoplanets, it could be Jupiter. And then for which aliens I would date, um, I found this uh, giant book about UFO contact from the Pleiades by my dumpster a while back. And they sound pretty chill. Like they're just like friendly aliens who just like show up and say hi to a Swiss farmer. That sounds like a nice life. That's fantastic. Uh, Ashley, uh, how about you? I'm Ashley. Uh, I'm a, what am I? I do science. There you go. Yeah. Um, I'm a machine learning researcher and astrophysicist. Um, I primarily work at the moment on a autonomous model for classifying the shapes of galaxies without any prior uh, like labeled training data. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and if I could date an alien, I would probably go for Catra from She-Ra. Oh, good she's choice. Cute. Good choice. She's cute and she's soft. She's got those cat ears. Yeah. Um, and Evan. Hi, my name is Evan Sneed. I'm a postback researcher in astrobiology. That's actually how I know Tessa. I do research on planetary atmospheres on the, the rocky side, so not looking at gas giants, but a little smaller, like Earth and Venus. He, they pronouns. If I had to choose, I I, I think there's something kind of special about those Kaminoans. You know, the the clone trader, the the cloners. I don't know. There's there's something about them. I when I was a kid, I wanted to be one of those guys so bad. They just have that that grace to them. They got a good look. Well, these were all fantastic answers. I really pleased with that. And so I guess as an introduction, we have gathered you all here today, a council of five, well, really a council of four and then me, to talk about the recent reveal to the public of the discovery of phosphine in Venus's atmosphere, clouds, area. For anybody who, like me, doesn't know anything about planets or space or atmospheres or chemistry or really anything except for how to identify flies. Why is this significant? And as if you were describing it to a curious but ignorant 10-year-old, what does this actually mean? Phosphine is an interesting gas, smells kind of funky, and it's interesting because on Earth, it's extremely difficult to make unless you have biology involved, unless you have some sort of biological process manufacturing it. It is not produced in any real quantity just through blind chemical reactions 
happening in our atmosphere. And the reason everybody got very excited about Venus was because of this fact, and also because of what we know of the sort of chemical reactions that happen in Venus's atmosphere, which admittedly is still not as understood as well as we would like. It would also be extremely difficult to produce phosphine gas, just, you know, again, through happenstance and a bunch of atoms just running into each other, especially since a major component of phosphine, in fact, three-fourths of the molecule is hydrogen, and Venus is very, very poor in hydrogen. We basically have a molecule here, which on Earth is pretty much exclusively generated by biology, occurring in an atmosphere where we shouldn't really see it based off of what we do know of the planet's atmospheric chemistry. And while we don't know for sure if it's produced by biology, again, there's a lot we don't know about the chemistry of Venus, and there are some obstacles to stuff living there, which we will get to, it's very suggestive that something very strange is going on. Sure. So why wouldn't we have seen this before? This is actually one of my favorite things about this whole story, that we, have, we haven't seen it because we haven't looked for it. Hmm. Um, and this, this is one of the first times in a while in astronomy that a discovery like this has been hasn't been like serendipitous a group of scientists sat down worked out that phosphine would be an interesting biotracer and then went to some telescopes to look for it and then found it Hmm. whereas quite often in exoplanet research um, and astronomy in general nowadays it's well, we pointed a telescope at a sky for six weeks and this weird thing appeared and now we've got to work out what it is. So this this was like kind of back to the roots in the scientific method. Someone had a hypothesis and they tested it and, and, and it worked out. That's actually fascinating to me. Philosophy of science perspective. Astronomy often gets brought upside alongside like taxonomy as being a primarily observational discipline and thus is it actually science are you actually testing things so the demonstration of hypothesis testing in astronomy is very interesting to me maybe not to other people have we found phosphine gas elsewhere yes i i asked this on twitter i was like why aren't we looking at jupiter and saturn and apparently phosphine has been found on jupiter and saturn but it's not as interesting because they have a lot more hydrogen in their atmospheres than Earth or Venus. Okay. And my understanding is also in sort of the really deep layers of the atmospheres of Saturn and Jupiter, thermodynamically, it's a lot, lot, lot easier to produce phosphine than it is on Earth or presumably on Venus. That's, that's my understanding as well. Another thing about why we didn't detect this earlier is in part because of the, the telescopes we've had available. This discovery really relies heavily on ALMA, which is a array of radio telescopes down in the Atacama Desert. And it's it's been around for a while, but it's relatively new. And they used another telescope, but the detection with that one was far more marginal. And the, the other telescope for the record was the James Clark Maxwell telescope in Hawaii. Yes, that definitely means something to me. Absolutely. <laughs> so the the thing about this is that we are developing this technique as we speak. And so looking at Venus using ALMA and this uh, James Clerk telescope, this was a benchmark to see whether this was actually, this technique is something that we could use to look at exoplanets to look for phosphine. And we ended up just figuring out that there was phosphine in Venus's atmosphere accidentally. That wasn't the whole point of looking at Venus in the first place. It was just kind of a test. But when this group ended up finding it, that's what ended up leading to this multi-year saga uh, of trying to figure out, is this actually phosphine in Venus's atmosphere? Hmm. Well, that actually leads to the other question that I was going to ask, which is if somebody could describe the methods and the actual practical work of how these discoveries are made, specifically how phosphine was found on Venus, but also maybe in general, how people figure out what is actually in the atmospheres of places that we absolutely physically can't get to. In this case, we were doing this through spectroscopy um, at radio wavelength or millimeter wavelengths, I believe. And so what, what they did is they looked at 
a spectrum of light coming from Venus, and they notice that there is a dip that corresponds to the, uh, the wavelength of light that phosphine absorbs, one of many wavelengths of light that this molecule absorbs. It's a lot more complicated than that, and the data, how you actually get from an observation to a measurement and then a detection is very complicated, and it's the sort of thing you can spend an entire PhD on, um, and that's not something I have really much expertise in at all. Do either of you, Evan or Ashley or Tessa, have more experience in that area? So my experience generally is not in the radio, although some of us astrobiologists are starting to get more into SETI research, and then some of that is more in the radio. The overall process of spectroscopy, where you look for the absorption lines, uh, look and see as you send a signal out, or or you, you look at a signal, and then you look at what lines that you expect should be there that aren't actually there. That's the exact same thing that we would do in optical astronomy or infrared astronomy or any other type of astronomy when we would look at, for example, exoplanets. The, the observational research I've done is all in the optical um, and looking at galaxies, which are significantly further away. But looking at emission line spectra and absorption line spectra is the pedigree of, of astronomy really go, going back to even before sort of 1910 spectra was being used to, to measure the properties of chemicals that show up in, in both the atmospheres of stars and in nebulae and, and planets. Um, I think one really interesting thing about this result in particular is, I, I'm not sure if it's the case with ALMA, but definitely for JCMT, Venus is the brightest object that telescope has ever been pointed at. JCMT is, is used to, um, my secondary supervisor during my PhD um, did a lot of work on JCMT and, and lovingly called his past research blob counting because you are just looking for amorphous blobs in fields in, in, in the submillimeter range that are 5 billion light years away. So these aren't very bright objects it's used to pointing at. And this was a problem with Venus because it was actually so bright that the reflections from the internal optics of the spectrograph were confusing the signal. So there was a bunch of like secondary reflections all the way through the telescope to the detector, which normally you wouldn't have to deal with. That's fascinating. Yeah, I will say this all may, I think some of the hesitation, and maybe this is me projecting, may have been just like, well done, spectroscopy. But if I'm any gauge for other people, people don't know that. Certainly not other entomologists, I would guess. And if there's anybody I'm trying to get to listen to this podcast, it's entomologists and other people, I guess, and whatever. So, okay, so we've established how it happened, why it happened, why it's significant. In the reporting of this that any of you have seen, do you think people are missing anything really important? And I know that's a very vague question, but... Well, it's probably not aliens. Okay. I, I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but... Yeah, unfortunately, this it's a cool discovery, and it would be incredibly cool if it was some form of life. But there is just so much we don't know about Venus, and there's so much we don't know about the chemistry that might exist. Regardless, we've found something really interesting. Probably not life, sorry. And even on top of that, phosphine is not something that in, in terms of fairly simple molecules, phosphine is not something that we have a whole lot of information about. And the reason for that largely is that for all of us that are oxygen breathers... Which, as far as we know, is everybody on this call. As, as, I'm pretty sure. As far as we know. Phosphine is actually incredibly toxic. And a lot of the times, it's actually used as a fumigant and uh, for rodenticide on earth phosphine is not something that you want to have around if you are generally complex life and so our understanding of it it's dangerous to work with it's dangerous to research we have some information on it but it's not we don't have as much we don't have as much understanding of it compared to some of the other biosignatures that we would think we would see 
we have an answer for why we don't know a lot about phosphine, which is that it could kill any of us. But it's it's interesting to me that we don't know more about Venus. Is there a reason for that? Oh, I know why this. I know why this is. <laughs> okay. There's there's two reasons. Um, one of them is political, and one of them is scientific. Political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the political is that after the moon landings, um, and as the well, e- even during the the race for the moon landing. NASA and Roscosmos were battling to land on planets as well. NASA did really, really well at landing on Mars, and Russia did not. Eventually. Yeah, yeah, eventually, yes. And the landers that went to Venus were all done by Russia. I, I don't think there's any other country that's actually successfully landed something on the surface of Venus. And nothing has been there since the mid-80s. And so that that's the political side of it. Like Russia was the main country interested in going to Venus and they stopped doing it because the Soviet Union collapsed. I was really hoping I was going to be able to back you into acknowledging that there is life on Venus and that we didn't go there because <laughs> we have a bad relationship with them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it's You know, the Venusians, they're very prickly folk. They're yeah. so rude. <laughs> okay, so the other reason. So the, the scientific reason is Venus is a hellhole. V- <laughs> Venus is literally the worst kind of planet you could send a robotic explorer to. That's it really is... not going to help. That's really not going to help our diplomacy. Yeah. <laughs> that. The, um, the, the landers that did make it to the surface of Venus, uh, most of them only lasted like at most half an hour before... Uh, all of their circuitry was eaten ar- eaten away by the acidic atmosphere. One of my favorite stories is one of the earlier probes had a surface uh, monitor, so it had a little detector on a stick to detect what the what the ground was made of. And the lander landed. It sent some photos back, and then it deployed its little surface monitor. And the Russians got back a really weird result because it seemed like the ground was made of plastic. And and what had happened was the lens caps from the camera had oh, popped no. off, landed on the ground, exactly where the surface probe was meant to go. <laughs> I mean, that would have been a really strong biomarker. Oh, in its yeah, own way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I so while you were talking, I I did a little reading on Wikipedia, and the United States did send one lander to. Venus. Mm-hmm. It made it to the surface and lasted about forty-five minutes before it was killed by good job Venus. Just being Venus, an incredibly inhospitable place. Yeah, that's fast. Well, that's fascinating. But is there a reason we haven't done more distance research on Venus? Mars is more interesting. At, at least oh, that, okay. the, like that, that that's been the thing. It, in terms of, um, I don't know if anyone had a chance to watch the BBC Sky at Night special on this discovery um but the uh the lead researcher spoke quite candidly about how difficult it was to get funding and telescope time for this project and when it comes to planetary science in our own solar system people are a lot more interested in mars than they are in venus is part of that greater interest in mars connected to the idea that we can more easily get there in part if I recall, it's about as it takes about as much energy to get to Mars as it does to get to Venus. It is easier to land something on Mars because it doesn't have much of an atmosphere. And what it does have isn't just like sulfuric acid that melts your your lander. But also for a long time, people really didn't think about Venus as a place that could have life. So Mars has really been the star of the planetary science community because there's clear signs of water and that's really intriguing because we think much more about Mars as what could have been a habitable planet at some point, more so than we do about Venus. And so that draws a lot of the attention and the funding. 
I think there there is an understanding that Venus may have had a similar past to Earth and Mars. It, it it certainly works out that you know if two out of four of the rocky planets in our solar system had water on their surface, and we, and we know that most of the small moons also have a large amount of water, it it makes sense that Venus had water as well in its in its past. I guess another part of why Mars more than Venus is because Venus is very hard to observe. So those signs of past life or past water are going to be a lot harder to find on Venus. Why is Venus harder to observe? Well, uh, you have Venus has a lot of clouds. Venus is entirely covered in clouds. So that means that if you have a, if you send an orbiter, um, you can't just take optical images of the surface like you can with Mars. So that's part of it. And the, the other part is, yeah, and the other part is that it's very hard to send something into its atmosphere and have that survive for any meaningful amount of time. Except zeppelins. Yes. But getting things to the surface and surviving 93 bars of atmosphere is not an easy feat. And, 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 and what, like 300 degrees Celsius of temperatures and who 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 knows? And the, the sulfuric acid and yeah, it's it's a nasty place. Mars is a lot nicer. As yeah. basically the only thing about Mars, I mean, low bar, lo- low bar, but but yes, Mars is <laughs> Mars is nicer. <laughs> the biggest thing about Mars is the temperature gradient between your day night cycle. Because mm-hmm. it's a big desert. That's all it is. Yeah, get get a nice balmy twenty degrees. During the summer on Mars, it's nice. Are we talking twenty degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit? Yes, twenty degrees Celsius. Okay, Celsius. Because I was thinking twenty degrees Fahrenheit is terrible. Twenty degrees Celsius, <laughs> I I think it's nice. Anything compared to seven hundred and forty Kelvin of Venus is nice, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I was just gonna say I would like to offer a small defense of Venus because there have been a few people talking about the possibility of life on Venus as, you know, as early as the late 90s. Because the weird thing about Venus is that while the surface is totally inhospitable to any known form of life, there is a point in the upper atmosphere where, incidentally, they got this phosphine gas detection about 50 to 60, 70 kilometers above the surface where the temperature and pressure is actually about as close to Earth as you can find in the solar system. I mean, it's warm. It's about somewhere between 30 and 70 degrees Celsius, and which is, is hot, but it's not boiling. And also the pressure is just about one atmosphere, the same you get walking around on Earth. I, I think I also read that it's that that part of the atmosphere is also about 80-20 nitrogen oxygen. Oh, interesting. That's also where you get clouds in Venus's atmosphere, and those are those are clouds sort of like what we get on here on Earth, which are largely composed of water. So there is that is also well, yeah. I, I I don't know, I don't really okay, maybe maybe I can walk that back. Sorry. Okay, so anyways, the idea behind it and why initially people got really excited about phosphine on Venus is that you know there are these droplets suspended in the atmosphere. We know they're there at that level. And, you know, we also know that there's quite a bit of bacteria suspended in our atmosphere at any given time, mostly in droplets, in our case, of water vapor on Earth, you know, up in clouds doing their thing. Wait, wait, wait. So if I went up into a cloud right now Mm -hmm. and I took some kind of collecting medium, if I took an agar plate and I flew through a, a cloud and I just like held it up and I got some of the cloud on it and then I came back down to Earth and I cultivated it, would I find stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. That's incredible. Yeah, aerobiology is a thing. But the problem, I've at least I've discovered recently reading about this, as we've noted, sulfuric acid is a major component of the Venusian atmosphere. And part of the problem, this is one of the other reasons we don't know much about the chemistry of Venus's atmosphere, is on Earth, we're used to thinking about sulfuric acid dissolved in water. It's what you would do in your high school chem lab or, or whatever. On Venus, however... The planet is so poor in water that it's basically droplets of sulfuric acid with a little bit of water dissolved in them. And while there is potentially some very weird biochemistry that can survive under those conditions, nothing we know of on Earth 
could handle that and just not basically instantly dissolve into its constituent molecules. I see. I I don't think that's as big a hurdle to life on Venus as it's been portrayed in 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 the past week or so of 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 the media round, right? Like because we're talking about yes, nothing on Earth could survive that, but presumably, I would wager that if there was life on Venus, that it occurred around about the same time life occurred on Earth and would have occurred on Mars. Whether that is the same event or three different events is up for debate. And and also, it, it would take some amount of time for the sulfuric, sulfuric acid concentration to increase in the atmosphere. It, is, it, is it so unreasonable to imagine that o- over the course of a billion years that life slowly adapted to existing in sulfuric acid bubbles? That is a good point. Yeah, I suppose it could be possible. And we see life in some really crazy places on Earth as well. So maybe not, maybe not anything as extreme as Venus, but we also don't have those sorts of conditions on Earth to compare to. Another issue with life existing in Venus's atmosphere is that water droplets don't stick around forever. I saw an abstract this week that was that said that a, a droplet of water might stick around in the atmosphere for, oh God, I forget. It, I, it was maybe like four months or something, but I could be forgetting that. That but, sounds right. But that that makes it very hard to for life to persist if its environment only is around for four months. This abstract suggested that you could imagine that there would be some sort of spore phase to the life. And the other the other issue there is that my understanding of Venus is that you can find water in its atmosphere, but you really don't find much of any water at all in the atmosphere right by the surface, let alone like standing water on the surface of the planet. So when like this droplet would fall out, fall from the sky, like there's nowhere for that life to go that would be survivable. And in, in fact, I think when we talk about Venus, there's this, it's almost cliche. So, so Venus we think actually was Earth-like at one point. Back back a couple billion years ago, there's this idea called the faint young sun paradox. But in short, we can boil it down to the sun and, and most stars. As they get older, they get brighter. So a couple billion years ago, Venus was orbiting a star that wasn't as bright, and thus it wasn't you know, the surface of Venus wasn't as hot. We think that Venus likely looked like Earth and had an active water cycle. And as it heated up, that water started to, it wouldn't precipitate anymore and it would stop getting to the surface in the same way that we're talking about now, that only some of the water, uh, only a, a very small amount of water is in its atmosphere still, and none of it makes it to its surface now. How do we know the history of planets? Because on Earth, we have access to a lot of physical evidence that can give us clues to how things happened over the past few billion years. But on Venus, obviously, we can't go digging around for different kinds of rocks. We do this in a couple different ways. One of them is by looking at other systems. So we can look at young stars and observe that they tend to be cooler than older stars. And then for details of our solar system, asteroids are actually a great clue as to how the solar system formed. They're the remnants of the early solar system, and we can learn a lot about the history of Earth and the solar system from looking at these objects, which have just kind of been floating around out there since the solar system was formed. And they can tell us really cool things like how the giant planets actually migrated through the solar system and some cool stuff like that. The other piece of that puzzle, of course, is is computer modeling and coming up with... Generally, you would come up with a theory about how, say, the, the atmosphere of Venus evolved, and then you would test against the observations we see now. So if I have a theory that Venus had surface water, what would that mean after 
four billion years, what would be left in Venus's atmosphere to indicate that there was surface water, and then also doing computer modeling and 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 trying to build a essentially like backtrack through the history of of a planet to try and work out what processes would have caused the current conditions. Hmm. And we can couple that with you know we you're right we aren't getting onto the surface and doing archaeology we aren't actively digging. But we do have satellites, we, we do have orbiters, and we can use them to be able to peer through the clouds and to look at the surface of the planet. And we've been able to do that now for several decades, and we've been able to map the surface of Venus pretty decently. And from that, we, can, we have some idea of what the rock record is like on Venus. So we can couple that to our models and try to see how they're related. I, I will point out, though, that one of the other difficulties with Venus, and this is just something I've always thought was a really cool fact, is that unlike Earth, Venus doesn't really have plate tectonics the way our planet does. The entire surface, is based, the crust, is basically one giant tectonic plate. And as a result of this, instead of you know having regular earthquakes and volcanoes and the sort of stuff you see on Earth with subduction and all that stuff. It appears that about 500 million years ago, the whole surface of Venus just basically melted. So as a result, it's even if we could land stuff on Venus, it would be difficult, certainly more difficult than it is on Earth, to find very, very, very ancient rock records of any time beyond 500 million years ago. What I've really learned so far today is that Venus is very private. To ascribe intentionality to a planet really doesn't want us to know a lot about it or wants us to really work hard. Just playing hard to get. Yeah, Venus is our hard-to-get queen. Um, okay, I... Planets. I all, all I can think right now, genuinely, is last night I went on a light-trapping trip. And for those of you not in the know... Uh, light trapping is when you get like a bulb that has a certain UV output and you put it up with a sheet and it attracts a bunch of nocturnal insects and it's great. It's terrible in that a lot of insects land on your skin and I have very sensitive skin, so I don't love that, but I love seeing insects. So it's a reasonable trade-off. And so we were out in the desert because that's where you get more insects and Arizona is incredible because you don't actually have to go very far to be able to see a full uh, sky full of stars. And so I was looking up in the stars and then I was driving back into Tempe and I had like a weird transcendent experience where I like realized that we were all on a planet together in space and it was really wild. And so what I'm saying is that this whole conversation is bringing me back to that place of like the universe is large and incredible. And that was a lot of nonsense to get to some more nonsense. But I hope that it that feeling of wonder with the universe will resonate with all of you space people. I mean, it's kind of why we do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I am blessed to be able to say like, this is what I do for a living. This is what I do for a job is I get to try to answer these questions that people have asked for basically all of humanity mm. might not be very good at answering the questions but i'm trying we're all trying i mean here. it's you're not alone as we can see from this call maybe getting into more speculative territory we have established that it's probably not extraterrestrial left on venus i will take the position of a cynic and say how would we even know that we had found life if we found it Given that either we have a very narrow definition of life based on us and our understanding of stuff on Earth, in which case we are probably unlikely to find that elsewhere because of the specifics of like contingency. Tess and I even talked about evolutionary contingency on a different episode. And so the idea that, you know, life evolved a certain way here, but that's just how it happened and the particularities of Earth, etc., or we have a very broad definition of life, in which case we would likely find things that are extremely unlike us, but then how would we be able to tell that they were alive? I guess I'm 
basically asking you all to tackle the philosophical question of what it means to be alive. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and jump in on this one first, because this is a major part of my research, is that how do we deal with life that is very exotic compared to ours or, or radically different? And our hope is that all living systems, because of just at like a very base level, the laws of physics in our universe, in order to be alive, they're going to have certain motifs and features in their organization. Even if like the atmosphere they're breathing or the molecules they use as the basis of their biochemistry are very different, they're still going to be organized in a similar way. That's why going back to our second episode, you know, why I talked about network theories, because that's one way of looking for sort of the system of organization and living things. So basically, to answer your question, I would try to figure out all the chemistry that's going on in their biochemistry or whatever their equivalent of biochemistry is, and then see if the resulting chemical reaction network looked weird. And if it looked weird, it's probably alive. If it doesn't look weird, if it just looks like a jumble heap, it's probably not alive. I, th- no. I think if, if I were to put a condition on deciding if something was alive, I, I would say like imperfect self-replication would be my conditionality. If it's copying itself, but it's not copying itself perfectly, so it is a little bit different every single time, I would say that's probably something that's alive. I, I think that brings up a good point, that there are certain things that we're not going to be able to say one thing one way or, or another that for sure this is life at least until we can go and and visit it and this is one of the great things about venus is that we we can go visit it and we can go see eventually we're talking well and, and so one of the things right now is the breakthrough foundation funded by russian philanthropist yuri milner one of the things I haven't seen talked about a whole lot in the news is that they are working with this group already that, that published this this result to look and see if we can send missions to Venus within the next decade to go and see if we can find signs of life there in, you know, in probe using using an actual probe instead of us just kind of oh, well that looks like a a phosphine line using our telescopes here that's one of the great things about planetary science within our own solar systems that we can go there whereas for the rest of us that just study exoplanets there's never going to be there, there's going to be very few situations in which we're going to be for sure able to say yes that is a living being you know, you say that, but I've seen Star Trek. So. <laughs> I was about to say, it just, just means we got to get someone on inventing the warp drive. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. There's already a mission en route to Mercury, and they need to do a couple flybys of Venus just to get into the proper orbit. So while they're en route, um, they're going to take some measurements of Venus's atmosphere to try to back up this detection that we saw from Earth. Um, so that's important because while we're pretty sure that we've ruled out effects of the Earth's atmosphere, this lets us just confirm yet again, lets us confirm that this is indeed phosphine. Um, and that mission is Bepi Colombo, I believe. Well, Tessa, do you have any more like space topics that you want to make sure we cover? I think the reason a lot of people are excited about this is that statistically, it's probably not aliens, just because there are so many other things that potentially could be. We've ruled out everything we do understand about Venus, aside potentially from biology, but because we know so little about Venus's atmosphere, there's still a lot of things that potentially could be contributing to it that are just not well understood at this point. So given that huge possibility range, statistically, just, you know, using Occam's razor, it's probably not life. It's probably some sort of weird chemistry that happens in high temperatures with phosphorus and extremely concentrated sulfuric acid. And we just haven't done a lot of experiments with that. So, you know, it's surprising us. But I do still think that this discovery is relevant because it's probably one of the few we've had, certainly within our solar system, where despite that, the possibility of it being life is still a strong contender. I mean, again, it's probably not what it is, but it's definitely not out of the question, again, because it's 
happening at a layer of the atmosphere which has temperature and pressure and to an extent composition that's very similar to Earth's. There have been weird things that have been noted about it before. Um, one thing that I've always thought was intriguing was that there's this weird, mysterious UV absorber, as it's referred to in the literature, that occurs at that altitude. And it's been suggested that that potentially could be microbes using cyclooctosulfate or another UV absorbing molecule, essentially a sunscreen. Probably isn't, but I mean, it could be. There is, even though it's probably not aliens, for those of you out there who aren't astrobiologists, you shouldn't necessarily dismiss the possibility out of hand. And that's why everyone's still pretty excited about this, even though it probably isn't aliens, because it's one of the few cases we've had in astrobiology where while there's still a lot we don't know, the explanation of biology is still pretty parsimonious. See, as a systematist, I love that word parsimony. That's a little joke for all the systematists in the audience. And, and at a minimum, anything else that we learn about Venus is absolutely massive to our understanding of our own planet. Venus is, in many ways, the closest planet to Earth, other than Earth, within our own solar system. And our understanding of how Venus got to its current point and its current atmosphere can help us understand what the future of Earth is or a different path that Earth could have taken. And when we start looking even more at, at Earth-like planets outside of our own solar system, to, for us to be able to understand what are we actually looking for out there, what are we going to find? Hmm. So I have a question for the group, which is, how bad do you want there to be aliens? I think it would be pretty cool if there were aliens. It would certainly do great things for my professional career and career opportunities in general. So I'm, I'm generally in favor of it. I generally like the idea of ha getting to, you know, work on the extraterrestrials, working to understand them. That sounds like, you know, I'd be pretty happy to work on that for the rest of my life and get paid. Getting paid's nice. Whitney, how do you feel? I think it would be pretty cool. Um, I hope it's life. Like, I know it's, I know it's very unlikely. It would be pretty cool to see, like, like to see what life would even look like on Venus would be really interesting. I really like that we started with what alien would you date? And then now, now we ask whether or not we wish there was aliens out there. <laughs> I listen. Well, another question is, let's say tomorrow, a week from now, some point, something comes to Earth claiming that it is extraterrestrial life. It could look like a human. It could look like a big dog. I don't know why those are the first two things that I think of, but maybe it looks like a big insect and it gets me very excited. Not sexually, just in life. <laughs> what kind of evidence would you need that we weren't all just being punked? Well, first you said a big dog and now all I can think of is the aliens are Clifford. So Yep. <laughs> <laughs> How have they been hiding on Venus all this time? Well, maybe they say they come from Mars. Okay, but where are they hiding? In the underneath. <laughs> in like tubes. I, I, I think in order for me to believe that they came from another planet, I, I think I would just probably believe it. Like if, if I saw an actual spaceship on the news and, and an alien came out, if it's technology that's so far beyond anything that we have on Earth right now, which is what would be required, really, for extraterrestrial life to come from another planet to Earth and say hi, I, I don't think there's any reason not to believe that. Fair enough. Yeah, it's pretty hard to imagine how how you could fake that. Like there, there's certainly like there's certainly ways to fake UFO videos. An alien steps out of a spaceship and starts talking to you, like, it's a lot harder to fake. You're not wrong. I will also note that if you really do want to be pedantic, assuming that whatever alien representative isn't just, like, a cloned human they made for our convenience, would be get a DNA sample, or at least a, a biological tissue sample, do a genomic sequencing on it. And, you know, if the sequencing totally fails because they have 
completely different ways of storing genetic information or they use completely different sequences, then it, you know, it's probably an alien because pretty much everything on earth you can use RS16 genomic sequencing on. I used to do data analysis for sequencing before I did astronomy and you could probably, you could tell pretty easily if some, even if it uses DNA or RNA, it would be pretty easy to tell that it, it wasn't related to something on earth because most DNA on earth, there's, there's inactive elements that are repeated throughout the genome, just junk DNA left behind after years of evolution. And so to see something distinct, distinct there, you could pretty easily tell if this was extraterrestrial genetic material. And it would also be really cool to see, um, are there aspects of alien DNA that are the same? Or is there, is there stuff that could evolve independently that would, or maybe, maybe there's a common source of life. Like convergent evolution. Yeah. So, or maybe, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It'd be pretty cool. Okay. Follow-up question. We've established that this is an alien and we can't communicate with them. How likely are you to say yes to a date? <laughs> are I they mean- hot? You only live once. I mean, we gotta, we gotta get like ten people on at some point. Are they point thick have... though? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, they're you know. Let's say it's like a well, not a Vulcan, because what do they do for anybody? The once every <laughs> seven years, probably quite a lot. Ha! No, let's say it looks. It's a big worm. It depends on what functions of anatomy they have. Like, do they have tongues or something similar to tongues, for example? Well, that's very forward to <laughs> I'm an astrobiologist, Charles. This is my job. <laughs> yes. They have something that, like, functions as a tongue, but it's not sexual for them. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know. I'm sure we could work something out, and I'd probably go for it because, hey, when's the next time, you're, you know, you're going to get to have sex with something outside your... I, I, I want to be very clear. I said, go on a date. Oh, okay. Well, go on a date still. I'd want to talk to them, have a nice dinner, find out what they eat. You don't have to... This is what I'm saying. You don't have to do anything except have like a nice pasta dinner. And then where it goes from there depends on you and your comfort with big worms. In that case, absolutely. I mean, what you know, what's to lose? You could probably find out a lot about their species. And again, as Look, an astrologist, I'd want to if, know that. If I go on the date with the giant worm... And then it goes somewhere after that. Do I become shy halud and get blue eyes and control the spice? I was thinking of Dune. Yes. <laughs> it's on my mind. At a minimum, you're telling me there's a chance of free pasta. So I'm in. Well, the, I mean, they did just come to Earth. So they probably don't have Earth money. Yeah, well, so I, you're I, probably I, paying for the pasta. Uh, I don't know. I feel like restaurants can make an exception. It is a giant <laughs> alien worm. You could contact like some kind of TV show and make it a really like there used to be that um, Drew Barrymore Ellen DeGeneres show first date. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think the people on that show did actually have to pay for their own meals. So you'd have to find a more generous showrunner. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised with Ellen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the least you could do if you're making a show just right for the worms pasta yeah i think this definitely counts for our recurring segment of is it gay if it's in space i was just about to say it uh yes yes yeah yeah well because that's the other question is we all have human sexualities as far as we know and so that is the question is like look uh, i've made nothing <laughs> So then it's like, well, is the worm, am I, is it still gay if it's a space worm? And I'm going to say yes. Oh, of course. Well, it's, it's gender is probably not male or female based on human definitions. So it's yeah. almost definitely gay. Agreed. I mean, well, cause this is the thing is that if we go by human constructions of sexuality, then it's probably, if we go by like a certain essentialist construction of human sexuality it's probably not gay but if we go on a broader like queer theory queer is a holistic experience of existing outside of heterosexuality then yes the correct way it's yeah. gay. 
Yeah. Well, we've we've uncovered a lot of important information in the past hour. I think this is going to be really revelatory for people. C- can I can I hit y'all with some with some cool Venus mythology facts before we yes. finish? Hundred percent. So, what one of the things that if you know anything about like Roman and classical mythology is the Romans gave gods in the pantheon things called epithets, which are descriptions of um, different cults that worship the gods and, and different things that the gods supposedly did. Um, and so Venus has has things like Venus Felix, which is lucky Venus, and Venus Genetrix, which is Venus the mother. Um, and there are two which I just love, which I need to share, which is Venus Callipagus, which is Venus with the beautiful buttocks. <laughs> Because she's the god of beautiful butts. And Venus Castina, which is Venus of the yearnings of feminine souls locked in male bodies. Well, there you which go. Which I think is kind of kind of beautiful. That is pretty good. Good to know that Venus is looking out for us trans feminine folk. Yeah. And granting you all just the loveliest butts. <laughs> yeah. I, every trans girl I've ever met has an amazing butt. And Venus is why. So is there anything that any of you would like to say that you haven't had the chance to yet? Just like facts about Venus, facts about space, telling people to watch DS9. I'm just really looking forward to us learning more about Venus and especially its clouds. And who knows, maybe we'll get like a Bespin type cloud city type thing on Venus one day because of this. Okay, so to close out the show, if people want to find you online... Uh, where can they look? And let's start with Evan. You can find me online on Twitter at the Need for Sneed. Yes, it's my last name. Which is fantastic. That That's is fantastic. Uh, how about you, Whitney? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Powers with two Zs before the S. It's mostly pictures of my cat and dumb jokes. That's all anybody needs. And Ashley? Yeah, uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Ashley Nova, and I also have my own podcast, which is a queer actual play RPG podcast called Feelings First, which you should listen to. We have a new season coming out. It's great. Fantastic. I'm on Twitter at Cockroach Arles. I'm on Twitter at Spacermace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. The show is on Twitter at A-S-A-B pod or at our website, asabpodcast.com. And until next time, keep on sciencing.